0: Chapter three of a cabinet secret by guy Boothby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter three. During the week which followed my return to London, events followed thick and fast upon each other. The now famous ultimatum issued by the enemy, though surprising enough at the time, was not altogether unexpected its presumptuous tone, however, was the cause of general comment. As a matter of fact, it was not until it became known that the enemy, instead of waiting to be attacked on their own territory, had invaded that of Her Majesty the Queen, that the first feeling of amazement changed to one of anger, and, if the truth must be told, to one of no little anxiety. Our force at the front was well known to be inadequate, and, as we had the best of reasons for being aware a considerable time would have to elapse before it would be possible for it to be supplemented in my new capacity as a member of the cabinet my knowledge of the country in which we were about to fight stood me in good stead consequently i was kept busily employed after my return to england the situation as i have already said was one of considerable anxiety but as soon as it was announced that the popular soldier, Sir William Waller, had been selected to proceed to the south, in order to take up the chief command, the public fears were, in a great measure, allayed. With perhaps but three exceptions, no more popular choice could have been made, and I do not think I am breaking faith with my colleagues when I say that we were all agreed upon this point. The decision was arrived at on wednesday afternoon and orders were issued that the general in question should sail from southampton on the following saturday on the friday morning he was to be present at an important council at the war office in the afternoon he was to be received in audience at windsor and at eleven o'clock on saturday morning he was due to leave waterloo for southampton docks now waller and i had been friends for many years, and immediately his appointment was made known, I hastened to write him a letter of congratulation. In it I said that if he should have sufficient time at his disposal to allow me a chance of seeing him before he left London, I should like to shake him by the hand and wish him Godspeed. He replied to the effect that he would be dining with the commander-in-chief on Friday evening, and informed me that I was to be one of the party. In confirmation of this, the next post brought me an invitation, which I hastened to accept. In due course, Friday evening arrived, and the appointed hour found me at the commander-in-chief's residence in Bruton Street. I had already been informed that it was to be quite a small and friendly affair. As a matter of fact, the guest of the evening, myself, and two other friends, constituted the party. I was the first to arrive, sir george brandon followed me berkeley burroughs came next and as soon as he had put in an appearance we only required waller to make the number complete he was late however eight o'clock struck and still there was no sign of him our host in apologizing for the delay reminded us that owing to the multitudinous claims upon sir william's time it might be impossible for him to avoid being just a little late. When, however, the clock upon the mantelpiece stood at half-past eight, we began to look at each other and to wonder what could have become of him. At last, the commander-in-chief was unable to bear the suspense any longer. "'If you will excuse me,' he said, "'I will telephone to his house and find out at what time he left there.' Waller is such a punctual man that this delay is, to say the least of it, extraordinary.' He left the room, and, during his absence, we kept up that desultory kind of conversation with which one endeavors to cover the uneasiness caused by the non-arrival of an anticipated guest. A few moments later, the commander-in-chief returned with a puzzled expression upon his face. It becomes more inexplicable every minute, said he. From what I can gather, Waller has not been seen at his home since he left it, for Windsor. It is really most singular, and I am at a loss to know what construction to put upon it. However, if you have no objection, we will give him another quarter of an hour's grace, and if he is not here then, go in to dinner. We waited the allotted time with what patience we could command and when it had expired left the drawing-room and proceeded to the dining-room where we sat down to the long-delayed meal i cannot pretend for a moment that the meal was a success the non-appearance of our old friend the man who on the morrow was to leave england on one of the most important errands she had ever entrusted to a son sat like a wet blanket upon us if at the last moment he had been prevented from coming how was it that he had not sent a note of apology and explanation to his host had he met with an accident or been taken suddenly ill he would at least have given instructions that a telegram should be sent waller as we were well aware was the pink of politeness he was also a strict disciplinarian not only of others but also of himself that he would therefore have treated with discourtesy a man who, besides being his senior officer, was also his old friend, was the most unlikely thing in the world. There were special reasons that prevented us discussing the matter in all its bearings just then, but that we were all equally disquieted by his absence was quite certain. I was the first to leave the house, and I can remember that it was exactly a quarter past eleven when the front door closed behind me. Up to that moment, no word of apology, excuse, or explanation had been received from the missing man. It's just possible that I may find a message from him awaiting me when I reach home, I said to myself, as I took my place in my brougham. I was destined to be disappointed, however. There were several letters and two telegrams lying upon my table, but not one of any sort from Waller. "'Are you quite sure that no messenger has called from Sir William Waller?' I asked Williams, when he came to my dressing-room a quarter of an hour later. "'No, sir, I am quite sure of that,' he replied. "'Had any one called, I should have been informed of it.' With that assurance, I was perforce compelled to be content. I can give you my word, however, that I was by no means easy in my mind concerning Sir William's silence." Next morning, when I was in the middle of my breakfast, a note was handed me from the commander-in-chief. It ran as follows. Dear Manderville, could you spare me ten minutes as soon as possible after your receipt of this? I would call upon you myself, but for various reasons, which I will explain to you when I see you. I am unable to leave the house until I go down to Paul Mall. Here followed an assurance that the writer was very truly mine, his signature, and a postscript to the effect that the bearer would wait for an answer. I scribbled a hasty reply, saying that I would come round to Bruton Street at once, and as soon as I had made my toilet, called a cab and set off. On my arrival there, I was shown direct to the commander-in-chief's study, where I found him awaiting my coming with considerable impatience. "'It is very good of you to come so promptly,' he said." To tell you the truth, I am very uneasy, and as we are both old friends of the man, I thought I would consult you in an ex-officio capacity before going to the Secretary of State for war. I am to gather from this, I suppose, that up to the present you have not heard anything of Waller?" I answered with a little sinking of the heart, for I made sure that morning would dispel the mystery that enveloped his behavior. You have guessed correctly, he said. I have caused the most careful inquiries to be made, and have learnt that he left Windsor by the 325 train, reached Paddington at 420, entered a cab there, and has not since been heard of. Unfortunately, as nobody seems to have been aware of his identity, the number of the cab was not taken, and so far as we are able to ascertain, none of the drivers in the station yard at the time appear to be able to recollect whose vehicle it was that he employed. If you reflect that it has been arranged that he shall leave London for Southampton at eleven o'clock this morning, and that an enormous crowd will be at the station to see him off, it will at once become evident to you that his non-appearance will be far from making a good impression upon the public mind. But what has become of him? He can't have vanished into space. "'There are many other ways in which he might disappear,' said my companion, gloomily. "'Surely you don't suppose he has been the victim of foul play?' I put the question hesitatingly, for I knew the thoughts that were in my own mind. "'I scarcely know what to think,' the other replied. "'I can only confess that I am alarmed, seriously alarmed, by his prolonged absence.' Waller, as you know, is a man who realizes to the full the responsibilities entailed by his present position. Duty with him is more than duty. It is a matter of life and death. He knows that the eyes of England, of Europe, and I might even say of the whole world, are upon him. And for that reason alone, I feel sure he would not cause us so much anxiety of his own free will. In that case, what do you intend doing? I inquired, for I could well foresee the terrible trouble to which the situation would give rise. It is now a quarter to ten, and in little more than an hour. He will be expected at Waterloo. If the crowd don't see him, they will begin to wonder. The man in the street will begin to talk, the newspapers will take up the tale, and in a few hours we shall have entered on a new phase of the situation. The commander-in-chief rose and began to pace the room. "'I have already sent a special messenger with a letter to the Secretary of State,' he replied. "'In it I have told him what I fear, and also what I have done. "'I shall consult the various heads of departments, as soon as I reach Pall Mall, "'on the bare chance that one of them may be able to elucidate the mystery.' "'At the same time I should communicate with the railway authorities, if I were you,' I continued." I should inform them that, owing to the fact of his being detained by matters of the greatest importance, it is possible that Waller may not be able to travel by that particular train. That is a good idea, the commander-in-chief replied. I will act upon it at once. In the event of our receiving no news, that should be sufficient to give us time to arrange some other plan. It will mean delaying the vessel at Southampton, however, and good gracious me what a pile of difficulties it will land us in the colonial secretary must be informed and the matter must come before the cabinet as you said just now if by any chance it should leak out and the press get hold of it there is no telling where it will end you have communicated with scotland yard of course i sent a messenger to them shortly after midnight that is to say as soon as i had found out that waller had left windsor and that he had not been to his club or to his own house their best men are at work upon it but so far without any satisfactory result and can his own servants throw any light upon the matter none whatever the commander-in-chief replied when he left for windsor he informed them he should be back early in order to dress for my dinner in the evening They say he appeared to be in the best of health and spirits, and seemed greatly pleased with the arrangements made for his journey today. Lord Laverstock accompanied him from the castle, and was the last to speak to him at Windsor Station. From the conversation I have had with him by telephone, I gather that Waller was looking forward to his dinner with us last night. The guard of the train corroborates the fact that he traveled to Paddington, For the reason that the railway authorities expected him by the next train, there was no crowd upon the platform to witness his arrival. On alighting, he simply called a cab and drove away. After that, he vanishes completely. There is no way, I suppose, in which we can make further inquiries concerning him? There is nothing so far as I can see. We are doing all that is possible, but our position in the meantime is a most anxious and unpleasant one. Now I shall hasten along to see the Secretary of State for war, and hear what he thinks of the situation. He will doubtless consider it necessary to call an immediate meeting of the Council, when the situation can be discussed in all its bearings. Let us hope that he may be heard of before very long, I replied. So saying, I left him and drove home again, feeling sadly upset by the untoward turn events had taken. What could have become of poor Wooler? Had he been decoyed into some slum and murdered? A hundred fears for his safety assailed me, each one equally probable and equally cruel. When I reached my house, I found that the letters had arrived and were spread out upon my study table still thinking of waller i opened the envelopes and scanned their contents one was larger than the others and on opening it i found that it contained a card upon which the following words were printed the countess de Veneza at home on wednesday november the twenty first from nine until eleven o'clock in the bottom left-hand corner was the address wiltshire house as i stood with the card in my hand The memory of my first meeting with the Countess came back to me, so rapidly had events moved of late, that it seemed as if a year had elapsed since I had last seen her. I recalled the impression her dark, haunting eyes had made upon me, and, discourteous though it may be to say so, I must confess that a shudder passed over me at the recollection. I placed the card upon my mantelpiece, and, for the time being, thought no more about it. There were other and more weighty matters than an invitation from a pretty woman to be considered that day. Everyone who has followed the progress of the war, and there are few who have not, will recall the wave of consternation and dismay that swept over England when the news became known that Sir William Waller, the newly appointed Commander-in-Chief for South Africa, had disappeared and could not be found. A thousand rumours! all of them equally sensational, and all equally wide of the mark, flew about the country. But despite the efforts of the police, the jibes of the press, the scarcely veiled sneers of little Englanders, and the openly expressed contempt of our continental neighbors, not a trace of the missing man could be discovered. A meeting of the cabinet was immediately summoned, with the result that General Gray Mortimer, a gallant gentleman and an experienced soldier, was at once dispatched to the front, in temporary command. In the meantime, the wildest excitement prevailed in England. Transports were leaving the various ports every day. The reservists were called up. The militia and volunteers were being equipped and drilled, if necessary, for active service. Plainly, the heart of the country was stirred to the very centre of its being. Such was the public temper at the time that few entertainments were given by society. Such as there were, and to which I was invited, I, for the most part, declined. An exception was made, however, where the Countess di Venezia was concerned. The temptation to see her play the part of a hostess was more than I could resist, and for this reason, ten o'clock, on the night set forth upon her card, found me mounting the magnificent staircase of Wiltshire House. From the number of arrivals and the crowding of the stairs, it was plain, despite the excitement of that period, that her at home was likely to be a crowded one. Her beauty, her wealth, the fact that she was, for the time being, the possessor of Wiltshire House, her famous team of black orlops behind which she drove in the park had combined to make her one of the year's sensations. The grandeur of her entertainments had quickly become proverbial, and in consequence to admit that one had not the entree to Wiltshire House was to argue oneself unknown, ascending the staircase by my side, cool calm and collected, as if the enormous weight of responsibility he was then carrying were of no account, was no less a person than the colonial secretary. When the history of the century, and of this war in particular, shall come to be written, the character of the Honorable Benjamin Castellan will shine prominently out. The possessor of a serene imperturbability that nothing could disturb, a keen observer, a born leader of men, and boasting that most necessary of all qualifications, a firm belief in himself, a better man for the arduous post he had occupied, could not have been discovered. I was not aware that you knew the countess, I said, as we climbed the stairs together. Nor did I that until a few days ago, he answered. May I ask where you made her acquaintance? In Paris, I replied we stayed at the same hotel. She and her father had just returned from a yachting trip in the Mediterranean with the Duke of Rotherhithe. Now, I am sorry to have to confess it, but that little speech of mine was destined to work an incalculable amount of harm. Castellan has confessed to me since that he was at first inclined to be somewhat distrustful of the countess. When I informed him, however, that our hostess Had been the guest of such a well-known personage as the Duke of Rotherhithe, she figured in his eyes in a different light, with what result you shall presently hear. On the broad landing, at the head of the staircase, we were received by the Countess, a more beautiful figure than she presented at that moment it would have been difficult to find perfectly dressed, carrying herself with a graceful assurance as to the manner born she made an ideal hostess. If further evidence of her wealth were wanting, it might have been found in the magnificent diamond tiara she wore upon her head, in the broad collet of the same precious stones about her neck, and in the beautiful bracelets that encircled her wrists. Only once before could I recall such a display, and then the wearer was an emperor's escort. As you may remember, when I first saw her in Paris, it had struck me that her attire was just one little point behind the prevailing mode. Now, however, it was as near perfection as it was possible for human hands to make it. She greeted Castellan first. It is indeed kind of you, Mr. Castellan, to come to me when every moment of your time is of such value, she said, as she shook hands with him. I follow your doings with the greatest eagerness, and marvel that you should have the strength to accomplish so much. "'Have you ever discovered that stress of work promotes growth of power?' said the Colonial Secretary. Then, with one of his inscrutable smiles, he added, "'Pardon me, Countess, I had forgotten for the moment that your power does not depend upon your work.' "'Ah, I fear you intend a compliment.' returned the lady with a smile. Must it remain for a foreigner to remind you of your own built-in? is strength without a double share of wisdom? Fast, unwieldy, burdensome, proudly secure, yet liable to fall, by weakest subtleties, not made to rule, but to subserve where wisdom bears command. It was not difficult to see that the aptness of the quotation astonished the colonial secretary. The purity of the countess's English was also a surprise to me, but for certain unmistakable indications it would not have been thought that she was a foreigner. When Castellan had passed on his way, she turned to me with a little gesture, as if she were pleased to welcome an old friend. "'Ah, Sir George,' she said, "'I am so pleased to see you, but I think I should give you a scolding for not having been before.' I hastened to excuse myself on the plea of overwork, and, having obtained forgiveness and promised to amend my conduct in the future, I passed on to shake hands with her father. When I had been again thanked for my kindness in the matter of the French train, I followed the colonial secretary into the ballroom. I had not been there many minutes before I was greeted by a voice which I instantly recognized, saying, "'How do you do, Sir George?' and turning, I found myself face to face with the handsome young Count Reifenberg, madame's cousin. "'And how do you like London?' I inquired, after the usual polite salutations had passed between us. "'I think I understood you to say, on the occasion of our crossing from Paris, that this was your first visit.' "'I like it very much,' he replied. "'But, to be candid, not so much as Paris.' I trust that is not a rude thing to say in London. "'Every one is entitled to express his own opinion,' I answered, somewhat coldly, for I had taken an instinctive dislike to this young fellow. "'You must remember that you are seeing England at her worst just now. The times are too anxious for us to be very gay.' "'You refer to the war, I suppose?' he answered. Then he added, with what I could not help thinking was intended for a sneer, "'The war,' "'is the sensation of the moment.' "'It naturally would be,' I replied, "'though proverbially phlegmatic. "'We still have sufficient feeling left to be patriotic. "'But perhaps your sympathies are with the other side. "'One can scarcely help feeling some sympathy.' "'My dear Conrad,' said the Countess, "'who had come upon us, unperceived, "'I really cannot let you talk politics in my ballroom. "'Go away and find your partner at once.' prove to her that you have learned to waltz in vienna she tapped him playfully on the arm with her fan but for my own part i could not help thinking that her words were not meant to be taken as lightly as she had spoken them at any rate the young man muttered something under his breath and left us conrad is a foolish but a warm-hearted boy said the countess looking after him because messieurs don't wear uniforms, and are not nice to look at, he calls them patriots fighting for their country, and honors them as such. I fear there are many like him, I replied. I trust, however, Countess, that we have the good fortune to possess your sympathy. Could anyone help sympathizing with the handsome British officers? she answered. I have no doubt. At that moment, A sudden buzz of excitement ran through the room, and she stopped without completing her sentence. It began near the door, and quickly spread from group to group. Whatever the news was, it caused a look of consternation to appear on every face. "'What can be the matter?' asked the Countess. "'I wonder what they are all talking about.' As she finished speaking, the colonial secretary came up to us. "'I hope that you are not the bearer of evil tidings,' said my companion to him. At the same moment I noticed that her face was very white, and that there was a frightened look in her eyes. "'We have just received terrible intelligence,' he replied. "'The steamer, Sultan of Sedang, with Sir Grey Mortimer, his staff, and the 1st Midlandshire Regiment on board, has been blown up at Madeira, and only three men saved.' The shock was so terrible that, for a moment, I stood as if tongue-tied. "'And Green Mortimer?' I asked, when I could speak. "'Killed,' was the reply. "'Good heavens! How terrible!' I said. "'Are you quite sure it is true? How did you hear the news?' "'A message has just reached me from the office,' he replied. "'There can be no doubt about it. Waller first. "'Now, Grey Mortimer,' I said to myself, "'what can it mean? "'I shall go to the Admiralty and obtain full particulars.' "'I will accompany you,' said the colonial secretary. "'Good night, Countess, and many thanks for your hospitality. "'I am sorry, indeed, that this news should have reached us at such a time.' "'And I, too,' she answered. "'Then, turning to me, she continued, "'I hope you will come and see me again, Sir George.' As she said it, she looked into my face with a glance that would have set many hearts less susceptible than mine, beating with unusual vigor. The memory of that look accompanied me down the stairs and remained with me for some time after I was seated in the colonial secretary's brougham. Then we set off to the Admiralty to learn the details of the disaster. Alas, as Castellan had said, it proved only too true the steamship Sultan of Sedan, had reached Madeira safely and had anchored in the bay. Nothing of a suspicious nature occurred, nor was any boat seen near the ship after dark. Suddenly a terrific explosion was heard, and the great vessel was blown to pieces, the only men who escaped with their lives being a stoker, a sergeant in the Midlandshire regiment, and an officer's servant. At the time of telegraphing, Boats were out searching the bay, while the most careful investigation as to the cause of the disaster was proceeding on shore. The colonial secretary and I left the admiralty when we had heard all there was to be told, and proceeded into the street once more. The coachman had been ordered not to wait, as we had decided to walk on home. Late as the hour was, the alarming intelligence had spread like wildfire, through London, and already a considerable crowd had collected in Whitehall. Fortunately, Castellan and I were able to slip out, unrecognized, and then we set off in the direction of Trafalgar Square. The colonial secretary's residence, as all the world is aware, is in Carlton House Terrace. At the corner of the small thoroughfare that winds its way from Coxpurst Street into Carlton House Terrace, we stopped and stood for some moments conversing there together. Then we wished each other good night, Castellan going down the narrow street of which I have spoken, while I proceeded along Pall Mall and Piccadilly, in the direction of my own abode. My thoughts were the reverse of Pleasant as I strode along. A cabinet council had been summoned for the following morning, and, with this sad intelligence to be brought before it, there could be no doubt that it was likely to be a gloomy one next morning i rose early i had a large amount of work to get through before the meeting which was to take place at eleven o'clock at a quarter to that hour i drove down to whitehall and made my way to the foreign office this is terrible news indeed manderville said the prime minister as we shook hands poor Grey mortimer and all those gallant men i scarcely like to think of the effect it will produce upon the country first that succession of disastrous defeats, then Waller's extraordinary disappearance, and now this new catastrophe. However, as we shall have to discuss that directly, I will say no more at present. Are we all here? There was only one person who had not arrived, the colonial secretary. "'It's not like Castellan to be unpunctual,' said the Prime Minister. "'Doubtless, however, it won't be long before he puts in an appearance.' When ten minutes had elapsed, and still he did not come, a messenger was dispatched to the colonial office in search of him. It was not long before he returned with the information that Castellan had not yet arrived at his office. Close upon the heels of this message came another from Mrs. Castellan, anxiously inquiring for her husband, who, it appeared, had not come home on the previous night, nor had any communication been received from him. As I heard this, a great fear took possession of me. I had said good-night to him in Cockspur Street, only a few paces from his own front door, and had seen him walk in that direction. How was it, then, that he had not reached it? Was he the victim of a plot? Had he disappeared like Waller, never to be heard of again? End of Chapter 3